Hey, Steve. Thanks for joining us today. Um, for those that don't know you, could you introduce yourself? What up? Uh, yeah. So my name is Steve Miller. I'm a researcher. Uh, I work at this company, really small company called Stairwell, cybersecurity company with a different name. <laughs> uh, but before that, I was at Mandiant for um, about eight years, and I do kind of like a variety of things. I think I focus a lot on, I'm really just psyched about detection stuff and detection rules. And I tend to kind of do detection stuff as it um, kind of intersects with incident response and threat intel type of stuff. So I kind of like to ball a bunch of these things up and help out the way I know how in those in those different areas. And um, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's me <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Steve, I was really excited to invite you onto the podcast because you, you have a number of kind of Twitter threads or Twitter opinions or thoughts or whatever we want to call them that that have really struck me and at least like they've caused me to really think about certain things that maybe I've taken for granted. And I think there's like, there's always a ton of assumptions that are built into something that's especially as complex as detection, right? Um, that is worth always exploring. And one of the, one of the things that uh, I've seen you talk about, and I've seen other people talk about that there's a lot of consternation or maybe differences of opinions about how this applies is this, this concept of like, what does malicious actually mean? Or how do you even approach detection in the first place? Like, do you have kind of a mental model that you use for uh, approaching the the concept of detection as a whole? Like maybe start at the broad and then we could maybe get into some more detailed perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's also like one of those things. I think my understanding of the D word has really changed <laughs> sure. over the years. <laughs> you know, I don't even think I really like grasp what it was um well i like when i started mandy and i was really more of a sock analyst so all i was really the way i understood detection was in terms of alerts right and i think that's kind of like obviously sitting in that seat that's where you receive you're like at the end of the line you're yep. the conveyor belt has like brought everything to you um so that's kind of where i really started to think about detection and then more recently, as like just the work that I did evolved over the years, I start to think about it more like a radar system, right? Where you want dots to show up. Like the first step is that dots have to show up on the radar. And then the second step is you have to know if those dot, like what those dots are and if they mean something important hmm. to you. So like that's been a, it's been a long journey kind of coming, coming to that kind of like framework where I'm really thinking about first, obviously just having a data point, having a dot yeah. for everything. And the number one thing is you can't do anything else until you got a dot. And that seems like such an obvious thing now, but I don't <laughs> think I, re I realized yeah. that until quite recently, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Fair. The, one thing. One the, um, oh, go ahead, go ahead Jared. I was just going to say the, uh, an interesting thing is like, what's your criteria for producing a dot? Because like, uh, I like there's this balance of like how sensitive or specific do you want to be in producing those dots in the first place? Right. A lot of times as like a sock analyst, like you mentioned, the, the dot production is outside of your control. Right. Right. Um, but if you don't produce a dot, then that, that, that event will never be analyzed ever. Right. And so like, there's a, there's an issue with being too, too specific as in like, 
suppressing dots. But right. then like I'm I'm rel relatively sensitive, and so I like to produce lots of dots. But then the feedback is, hey, now we have tons of false positives, um, and we're getting uh, like alert fatigue, for instance. Do you have kind of like a what is your general criteria or thought process for producing a dot? Because it sounds like you you might be uh, a little bit more open to producing more, like based on what you just said, I suspect, or I'm starting to think that you might be open to being more sensitive as far as things that don't necessarily have to be malicious to produce a dot on the radar. Yeah. Um, it's a hard, it's a hard conversation because you have to have it from like so many different perspectives. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I think I always have existed inside you know, the vendor space mm -hmm. where okay. things are totally under my control. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I, you know, even if I'm getting all those like good or bad or ugly dots, um, I can usually go and change those things. And that's not true for a lot of people, for most people who are using detection equipment is they don't have a ton of control over the aperture of like data that, that they see or don't see. Um, but for like just a lot of my time, you know, again, like almost all my security experiences, like through this, through this lens of Mandiant, right? Mm -hmm. When I was looking at network alerts, right, the way we kind of began to think about the dots and the aperture is to like, obviously just divide them into buckets, right? So even though everything kind of ended up as an alert, um, we would kind of create detection rules that were really meant for more like just almost like logging events yep right because in a, a, like you know a detection rule is just some logic it matches something that happens and it's not an alert like it's not necessarily an alert unless you treat it like an alert it's just like a little line item that says something match something at this time at this place source desk ip whatever so like uh, just over time, I started to think about how, like, where you want the alerts are those things that are obviously higher fidelity, and you can triage them quickly, and you can go, you can take that thing and immediately pivot into an investigation that's kind of interesting and probably valid and probably worth your time. And then that's like, that's like this special place because you don't want to jack up the data that kind of goes into that top tier aperture mm -hmm. for the sock. Cause you know, that's the job. That's yeah. the job. And you just want the best. And that's where you have to also achieve a lot of balance, right? You're gonna, in that top tier, there's always false negatives period. There's actually yeah. a lot. There's yeah. that's the most false negatives. There are where you have the most um, true positives. Right. Yeah, so I, then like, Oh, go ahead. Oh, Sorry. dude, once you, get, <laughs> once you get me started, I'm just going to wave my hands and rant. But, um, but like, you know, and that was where I started to get into creating my own detections and writing these, you know, quote detection rules that actually were at these lower tiers where the aperture is bigger and they were never really intended to be used as starting points. Right. And because we controlled the full stack of technology and the, all of the alerts that we want, that we like create, or all the detection rules that we're creating, I could stack them up. Like, yo, this is a methodology rule, but it's so, it hits so rarely, it's great. We're just gonna pop that into tier one or level one, priority one, whatever. 
And then these ones are really great for logging other types of things that could be more interesting. Mm. And then it's like that cascade from the really, the really high fidelity stuff on down. And those have different consumers too. And this is where I like my mind really started to change that like um, detections and, and alerts or events and whatever is coming out, they have different consumers. Like at the sock level, you have to consume, you know, it's a different conveyor belt that comes off the detection like factory, mm-hmm. right? And those those items on that conveyor belt have to be really different from the ones that go to the Intel analysts, the ones that go to the threat hunters, or the ones that we just store for a rainy day in case some big breach happens. And now we go back through all that data that helps us like create a web of activity. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I, I really like what you're mentioning there, um, especially when it comes to different events means something different to a different consumer, so a different analyst, right? Um, I think oftentimes when we think of data collection, we all think of it going into one funnel and essentially um, going into the same alert logic and then eventually hitting the same analyst and then escalating that to an investigation, et cetera, and goes down the pipeline. But I do think there are instances where data could be pulled out um, based off of some type of logic and then just stored somewhere for a rainy day because it might not reach the severity that we might want it to um, in terms of, hey, this is this is severe enough to where I want to alert somebody and actually take a, a look at it right now. But it's a contextual data that's like, hey, if later down the road this event happens, I want you to pull this for me, add it to this, and then we start to move down so it can be added as contextual piece. Um, but then again, I really like what you mentioned about how that is a scenario where all the tooling available to us is controlled by us. Yeah. Um, I think that's I think that's not really talked about a lot and actually makes me want to zoom out a moment, if that's okay, and talk about the steps it takes to actually get to detection. Because we often talk about detection, but like this is detection in, in my eyes is the centerpiece of the flow of the funnel in the sense of processes, not Jared's detection um funnel, but more of um, the process funnel in general. So what does it take to actually create a detection? And then whenever the detection is created, how do we determine the severity via this data should be malicious if it happens, this shouldn't be malicious, but going backwards in the sense of, um, and I think you would have great experience on this coming from Mandiant, of these investigations have happened, now we're deciding to create a detection off of it Threat Intel feeds into that because Threat Intel isn't talked about enough when it comes to detection. I think they hold a good amount of value um, and feeding into the detection process. So I I would love to hear your your thoughts about that. Oh, man. It's a can of worms, isn't it? Because (laughs) there's so many questions. (laughs) Um, I, I guess, like, yeah, it's crazy. So Mandiant, like, and you take it back to all the uh, like incident response companies that are crushing out like you know threat intelligence stuff that is used for detection and a lot of that you know a lot of that is like postmortem stuff like they're doing the autopsy and they're saying this is how this like bad thing happened and then we're going to use everything that we found to go find more of it right and this has this like whole cascade of precision right so like back in the day it was like oh guess what if we look in the application shim cache app compat 
we're going to find a lot of malware persistence, right? So we're going to have that kind of, we're going to sweep an enterprise and find those things. So that's like a, a very broad, right, de- detection approach. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then it's like, oh, well, also this actor had these five malware families, right? And these five malware families we can detect with a little bit more precision, because yeah. they and we're going to give them a name so that we can organize it and track it, etc. And then, oh, you know, these malware families use something so specific, it's like uh, a network protocol, or it's like an actual hash or an IP address, right? And so there's like, you know, I always found just from the incident response space, like you get all those things every time. Every time there's an investigation or a breach you have like things across that entire range of like precision and taking this to like, when we were at Mandy, when we were acquired by FireEye, we got access to all these products, right? Huge amounts of sensor fleets and email stuff and blah, blah, blah. And there was always this kind of like, well, what, what do we, uh, (laughs) what do we put into our different, our different products and at what levels of precision we had to start making choices about, you know, generic detection, specific named detections, and and more like tradecraft or methodology stuff. Yeah, I think there's uh, there's an interesting aspect of um, what does detection actually mean in the first place. And I think in this case, like we we conflate the idea of detecting malicious behavior with detecting behavior, right? So there's like a mm. contextual element that has to be la- or a contextual layer that has to be put on top. Um, and I think at first, what we what we have to do is be able to uh, detect a behavior of interest, right? And that, that might be uh, a file, this file, this specific file was was uh, created on, on the system. And that would be like a hash-based detection, right? That like the idea that that file happens to be malicious because we've seen it you know, through threat intelligence or in a prior breach or whatever, that's a completely separate layer than the behavior layer that we're mm. looking at, right? Um, and so, like, we might say, look at all file creation uh, operations where the hash is this. And that just tells us this specific file, you know, assuming no hash collision or whatever, um, was created on the system. And then we're able to layer that kind of, like, threat intelligence information on top of that, right? Um, and the 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 interesting thing is, like, how do you how do you leverage the telemetry that's at your disposal or that's available to you to to be able to ask more complicated behavioral questions, right? So one of the things that like Johnny Luke and I have looked into is service creation. We use it because it's a pretty simple uh, example to discuss, right? And so like there's a difference between understanding that a service was created, a generic service, and it's not that's not as simple as it sounds, right? So like. A lot of people might say, oh, there's a Windows event log for that. Well, I could create a service and not generate that Windows event log. So it's still not an easy question necessarily. Like there's some technical nuance to it. Uh, But then there's a completely different question that has to go on top of it of what is this a malicious service, right? And how do you actually derive that malicious kind of context? Well, there may be things like, okay, well, we happen to know, like we happen to know that this specific binary is used for malicious stuff. That's great, right? That's high fidelity. We, we could find that. But then there's also something like, we know that services are used for lateral movement. So how can we derive the behavior of a service being created remotely from the telemetry that we have available? And it's not necessarily like obvious how you might do that, right? And so then you start to 
kind of dig through the different telemetry that's available to you to evaluate that. And that's where those dots come from. And then I think, I think there's a secondary process, which is how do we add context on top of those dots? Which So it's like the yeah. first dot in the radar is a plane is flying by, but it could be a friendly plane. It could be a foe plane, an adversarial plane. Um, and we need to, then we kind of add that context onto it as far as, uh, you know, what, what is this doing? What's the behavior of it? Can we, you know, try to figure out something about it? And I think an interesting thing about having a, a solid detection process or like overall detection response process is you can actually add additional context as you become more certain that something uh, is potentially interesting, right? So like, if you're just looking at raw events that are coming in, you you might not be able to correlate certain types of information because it might just be too heavy handed. But mm -hmm. if you get down to, you know, 10 alerts, then you can you can maybe go out and use your SOAR platform or whatever to go and collect some additional information that maybe wasn't available enterprise wide. Right. And that provides you with really valuable context that might help you make a, a better decision. Well, this is kind of where, um, you know, like we start to, you know, in some ways, I think we create too many dots in, in some cases, right? So like the example you say, like service creation, you might have 10 dots for that. It's hard. It's hard to, um, it, and it's hard to pick and choose which ones are, are more representative, right? Yep. You may have 10 million dots for that. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing um, I can't help but think when we think about that radar aspect um, is in situations um Let's say in the middle of the dot, we, we know is somehow we know that's a for sure malicious service being created. Um, and we have a threshold by which our scanner goes. You know, that could be our detection logic from the spectrum, whether that's a very precise detection or a broad. If a broad detection comes in, then we know the dot is fairly far away from the, okay, yes, this is for sure malicious. So it's like the severity range. Um, but then there has to be a threshold within that radar as well. And that threshold is essentially what is my anal how much is my analyst able to take in? Um, and then at what point am I willing to let that dot pass the threshold and go to my analyst and not go to a secondary place for contextual information? Yeah. And the, and then right, and then you add those when you do hit that point, right, how much context do you offer? Um, because that amount of context changes how you proceed with with that event, right? Or that, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a there's an interesting one of the things that I struggle with, Steve, that you talked about was this like false positive versus false negative. And as you said, like the more certain certainty you have that something is bad, the the more false negatives there are. And the problem with false negatives, of course, is that they're inconspicuous, right? You don't know that they're happening because there's no feedback mechanism besides a breach, I guess. Um, and like one of the things that's that's kind of interesting to me to like I I overly maybe I perceive that the the industry as a whole is more sensitive to false positives. And mm -hmm. as like as my my whether that's correct or not, I don't know. But my response to that is that I become overly sensitive to false negatives, if that makes sense. Um, and one of the reasons why I find myself really interested in false negatives or reducing false negatives is I think there's uh, there's not a one for one correlation between false pot like the the risk or the cost of false positives versus the risk of false negatives. So, like let's say we're looking at this services example, um, 
every alert has a cost, right? But it's a stat, like a fixed relatively equal cost for each additional service that you put on. So the, the graph of cost is, is linear, right? So like as you add an additional service that has to be investigated, the cost is going to be the same as the previous service. So it, it grows linearly, right? So a hundred, a hundred alerts for services is a uh, hundred times one alert for services conceptually, obviously not that perfect, but, um, but the problem with false negatives is that, that, that it's exponential because the risk that involved in a false negative is basically unlimited, right? Because uh, in theory, uh, a false negative could be the time that your company goes bust because of whatever, or like, you know, we saw like Maersk when they, when they had ransomware, it cost them like a, a trillion dollars. I'm making up that Catastrophic, number. Catastrophic, right? Yeah, it was yeah. gigantic, right? And so, um, you know, the, I almost look at like your willingness to accept false positives as your hedge on false negatives, right? So like, it's like, how, how much do you, how much risk do you really accept on this? If you're not willing to accept 10 false positives a day for this event, then you must not be that worried about it because, you know, a missing, missing a, you know, malicious instance of this is potentially catastrophic. And so if you're only willing to, you know, allow zero alerts per day that are not, that are like, if you're willing to allow zero false positives, then that means that you, you aren't possibly that uh, worried about, about this, right? It's kind of like, that's how I interpret it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't disagree. Um, and I, I probably share the same perception that it, like people are really concerned about too many false positives. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's probably conflated with like this huge history where all alerts were the same. Yeah. There were just 10, there were just 50,000 alerts an hour. And they're all the same and they might as well be false positives, right? If there's 50,000 of them, yep. um, even if they're all true positives, who cares? Cause yep. we, we cannot do, we can't do anything with that number. You know, I think one thing that I get very conflicted with the false positive, false negative conversation, cause I can't help but think, but taking a step back again before detection and really perfecting the prevention available to us in the environment um, and what might be there. Sure, eventually the data, it's, it's fairly simple and fairly easy for a lot of attackers to bypass that preventive, preventative piece. But I feel as if, if they can bypass that preventative piece, that will lessen the amount of false positives going through our chain. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like within detection, that's not often thought about and then, or at least not talked about. And then we get to the point of how do we create the detection, the logic. Um, and as we know, like when you get to more complex um, detections where, like, say, I like to talk about RPC. Like, I like to talk about RPC as basically every use case in this world. Um, <laughs> and there's no real good way unless you have network data to really detect on RPC today. Um, explicitly it being RPC. And so what about organizations that don't, and are, are not interfaced with that type of data um, from a day to day, or the network sensor isn't picking it up correctly, and how to join that network data to the host to really say, like, hey, let's look at this whole picture of the lifetime here. This is what's happening. Analysts have to manually go and add all these things. Well, now you have an alert from a host-based CDR, and now you have an alert from the network, and you have to, like, somehow, you have two analysts working on something, and it just takes a lot of time. So how do we actually go about that and then we have to take another step back and say well that's in a controlled environment where i'm controlling the tooling because it might be expensive 
to put all that data in one spot and have another tool, let's say like a Jupyter Notebook, for example, to where I can just join all the data together. Isn't, so, uh, isn't XDR supposed to fix that? Jeez, oh, I, <laughs> I like purposely remain ignorant on like, I don't even want to venture into that battle. I think, yeah. I think Johnny, that's like a, there's a bit of a tech, like that is a technical problem of like correlating. Like, so your prevention uh, perspective is like, yes, I think, I think when you can prevent, you should prevent, but yeah. like you should also pretend that prevention is going to fail in some, some oh, 100%, cases. Yeah. Um, well, that's the whole premise behind detection, right? Is like, Prevention's going to fail at some point, so yeah. we need we need a backup. Assume breach, I suppose. Is, yeah. yeah, but the the um, but then there's a there's a point of um, like correlating network to host or like being able to say like, hey, was this service created remotely? I think that's like there's like a that's a technical problem, right? But yeah. I think when it comes to false positives, false negatives, it's more of like a uh, an abstraction problem, right? So like the idea of like it. The, the problem with a false positive is that we have an imperfect view of the thing that we're trying to detect. Like we, we don't actually understand, like it's not obvious what a service is in the first place, right? So like when I say a service, that doesn't mean that every listener thinks of the same thing because they may think about it at a higher abstraction layer than I do. And I may think about it at a lower level than they do, for instance. Yeah. Um, and, and then like that query that I'm creating, let's say I'm just creating a query that says, I want to know when a service is created, right? So I'm not even adding on the abstraction of like maliciousness or, you know, whatever. Um, that That is an imperfect query based on my understanding of the phenomenon that that's occurring, right? And my, my understanding is inherently limited, right? And it's not perfect. And so a false positive is like an anomaly, whenever an anomaly happens. So like an anomaly is when you perform some action and something that you don't expect to happen occurs, right? What that yep. tells you, that indicates that your understanding of the phenomenon is not 100% correct, right? Yep. And a false positive or a false negative is, in fact, uh, an anomaly, right? So, like, if I say I wrote this query, um, I think what happens when we get this, like, true, true positive, like, true positive benign or, like, whatever conversation, we're conflating two parts of the process, right? Because the first pro part of the process is what is the behavior I'm interested in? That's the true positive part of true positive benign. Right. And that's saying, like, I want to know when a service was created. Well, there is a chance that I will produce an alert for something that is not, in fact, a service. Right. And that'd be a yeah. false positive. Um, I would say, like, when you're talking about this, that's probably less likely. There's also scenarios where I can not produce an alert when a service is created. That'd be a false negative. Right. And so, like, yeah. both of those are indicative of me not understanding service creation properly. Right. Yeah. Or well, uh, completely. Yeah. To that, Luca, one second. Uh, yeah, so like to that to that point, like I agree with you. In my head, if you were to add on other pieces of data, like with more context comes more understanding. So if we like take that abstraction view of like I just want to see when a service is created, I like 100% agree with that. Like that's that's fine. But eventually, we have to reach that threshold for our analysts to say, hey, like this is important enough to where I want them to actually take a look at it. That's where I think the other data applied from different contextual tools. Yeah. Um, within like a logic can really push it past that threshold of, hey, like we're going to kick this off to them. And I think this is less likely to be a false positive and more of a false negative. And then I'm going to have them spend their resources looking at it. If it doesn't pass that threshold, I'm willing, I'm, I'm, I don't know you're, for sure, but I'm willing to, willing to accept willing to the pay risk. the cost. Pay I'm the willing, cost. Yeah, willing to accept the risk that, hey, this is probably a false positive. Yeah, Sorry, Luke, for. I think, I think that's, uh, so yeah, my point is, is that that's a completely separate question than the initial question, right? 
Um, yeah. And like, and it's still, you're trying to say, okay, like this is another phenomenology question, right? So it's like, okay, I know that this is my set of all services, let's say. And like, you don't want, as Steve pointed out, you don't want somebody to look at every service that's created because there's a, a shit ton of them, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's potentially millions in a, in a legit enterprise a day, right? And so you need to, like, you don't have, you literally don't have the manpower to be able to do that. Um, and so then like, to your point, Johnny, you want to say, okay, what is the threshold by which I will consider this to be worth investing additional scrutiny? Because like yep. you have resources that aren't just human resources, you have, you know, um, like computing resources, right? And so like, that's, you've already spent resources to even identify that the service was created in the first place. Right. And that's potentially a more, uh, rich resource pool. But then as you go and provide like spend more time on it you are spending more constrained resources as you as you go and so you want to do that in a smart way but there's also yeah the the next phenomenon is what makes a service malicious and like our understanding of that is even worse than our understanding of what is a service in the first place right mm -hmm. because there's tons of things that can make a service malicious and we haven't seen every iteration of them right and so like Absolutely. yeah and so but that's where like correlation i, I think correlation is valuable uh like the service example is potentially a really simple uh, phenomenon to identify, but there's yeah. even there's some phenomenons that are uh, require correlation just to identify that they occurred in the first place. Um, like a service being created remotely, for instance, is one example of that. Like that might be a better starting point than just pure services, um, but you have to correlate things in order to get that information. Yep. Luke, what were you? Oh, my thing is. It might not be strictly relevant anymore. It was just a small comment on when you were talking about prevention and the fact that you should attempt to prevent first. And it's something we've talked about before, but I think it bears repeating that even if you do successfully prevent it, um, that doesn't mean that you might not want to know that somebody tried. So, I, you know, oh, if, yeah, you're, uh, if you're out there and you're listening to this and like getting a, a detection engineering program just because someone in your enterprise tells you that that thing that you wanted to detect is not physically or theoretically possible in the organization doesn't mean that you might want to wrap something yeah, around we, it just to figure out if someone gave it a shot regardless. Yeah, not like I'm a big fan mean, of like... Go ahead, John. I'm a big fan of like ASR rules, um, attack service rules, I think is what they're called by Microsoft. And like with those, if something is blocked, there is a log that happens and you can actually like leverage those. I'm a huge fan of that for like being more proactive in the detection um, field. I mean, the big example that everyone yeah. does is failed logins. Oh, yeah. So absolutely. if they're like, why would we care if, if something doesn't work? It's like, well, do you log when someone's password doesn't work? Well, yeah. Okay. So you're doing it, but there's some other things that you might want to expand on that, you know, beyond just password. Well, I think the idea is, is that just because you blocked this attempt doesn't mean that they're not, they're just going to be like, well, I guess it's not going to work. So I'm not going to do anything else. And like, you might not have a detection for the next attack path. So you probably <laughs> right. want to take what you could get. I mean, in the example of your house, you may lock the door, but you probably still have an alarm on it just in case the lock doesn't work. And in your case, you have cameras and everything. Else, <laughs> we also live in Texas. Remote, so there's a lot of other things controlled. out there that he's using. <laughs> <laughs> like Fort Knox with the guns that come out of the ground. Go yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you remember end of 2017? There was this malware family called Triton, which uh, came out. Yeah, generically. Yeah, so this was an attack on a petrochemical plant. Um, and it was one of the 
like kind of notable at the time because there's not that many examples of malware and intrusions in the like ICS or operational technology space, mm-hmm. like factories and real heavy industry stuff. But during that intrusion, uh, one of the things that kind of came out was that the organization that was affected had a lot of like blocked um, mimicats on their mm. AV stuff. And this was past their enterprise environment, more into their like ICS OT environments. And of course, like there were, there were logs, right? And, and the stuff was blocked, but it was not action the same way, right? Um, I always think about that as like, it's like, damn, yo, that prevention stuff is good. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. good, but like there is something happening. We there. need to be prepared whenever that something happens and prevention just wasn't a wasn't the answer if you have a bunch of uh blocked mimi cats in your logs that should sound the alarms that like yeah uh, you might not <laughs> you might not know what to do but you should be doing something you should be doing something i'm, I'm glad mimi cats didn't run but how the hell did it get there in the first place? <laughs> right right and this this was in like a not internet accessible zone either oh oh, right no. oh, yeah, so it's... they they had major problems it's the flash um, drives. It's really the yeah. flash drives. Yeah. Steve, fun fact. You mentioned this in 2017. I was still in college in 2017. So I do nice. not remember this. I was, I was going to make a comment about Johnny still being in diapers when that happened. But I, uh, I mean, he might Luke wasn't even born might, yet. Might, I, might I love hearing these diapers. jokes about Johnny. I'm older than him. Yeah. It's <laughs> weird because 2017 seems so, like so close to me. That seems like last year. <laughs> um it's like time shrinks as uh as you get older right yeah uh you did i forget what we were talking about uh obviously fps and uh fns it does seem to me like we have such a a fundamental problem with this conversation because we're using fp and fn and true positive and true negative to represent two different layers in, yep. in the whole thing. I don't right? think that we, I don't think we as an industry even acknowledge that there are multiple layers. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, yeah. And so like, is it a true positive, um, you know, the services example, right? Yeah. It's a false negative if we don't see it. Is it also a false negative if the next step, if we make the wrong decision that it's evil, if I, that it's not evil? I have an opinion on this and uh, you guys tell me what you think. But so, uh, Steve, before we start, you kind of mentioned that you are at least passingly familiar with my funnel of fidelity concept. And I know the other two are. Um, so I break it up and I, I, I'm not convinced that these are all of the uh, all of the phases that you should go through in detection. But you should at least be doing these phases, I think. So there's collection, which is how do you know what's going to happen or what what is how do you even have a perspective of what is happening? Um the next one is detection, which is like, how do I, I look at it as how do I identify the, uh, the behavior of interest, right? The next one is triage, which is how do I quickly identify the things that are most likely to have uh, some security relevance. And that's where you start to look at like a little bit of like the, uh, is this, you know, potentially malicious investigation, which is like a deeper dive into that question and then remediation, right? And if you don't, you have to do all of those things. And if you don't do any, if you fail at one of them, then you failed at kind of stopping the problem, right? Um, but I think there is a false positive, false negative. There, there is a classification question at each one of those phases, right? So, like collection, right? You, you may be, you may have uh, Sysmon uh, even ID one, which collects process creation events. But the question is, is, is it possible to generate a process that does not trigger a Sysmon even ID one, right? 
if if it is possible, which I, I'm personally not uh, knowledgeable of, of that possibility, but you shouldn't act as if it's not possible, I think. Uh, if it is possible to generate a process and not trigger a system on event ID one, then that would be a false negative, right? And that's at the collection phase, right? And then like, and like, then you start to go down the, down the path. But I think that there's some level, and this is where we get into like quality control and quality assurance. There should be some sort of quality quality control at each phase, right? Which is uh, quality assurance, just uh, my understanding of it anyway, is how do I create a process that is likely to achieve the result that, I, that I'm going for, right? So like, um, how do I, like, I want to collect process creation events while well, I'm going to use some technical uh, means to be able to generate events for when a process is created, right? That, that's the quality assurance. And I've defined that technically. And then quality control is, the process of trying to, of evaluating whether or not that process actually works in practice. And like a red team would be an example of a quality control extra. There's tons of different ways that you could do quality control, but that would be one. Um, and I think, you know, conceptually, and like, this is a lot of investment if you wanted to do this literally, but conceptually there's an opportunity for quality control and quality assurance at each phase. And there's potentially uh, false positives, false negatives, true positive, true negatives at each phase. And you have to you have to look at them separately. And so, just saying that this is a this is a true positive or this is a false positive is uh, lacks the sufficient clarity to be able to actually like mean anything useful. I think. Yeah. I think. Um, oh, I really like the way I really agree with that, Jared. I like the way you um, articulated that as well. Um, another piece I want to add on to that is I think like <clears throat> at each layer. We have to be sensitive to how we're classifying the data set moving across being false positive or false negative. However, I do think there is one end of the funnel where we have to be more sensitive in doing so. Yep. Because, um, and I, I would say um, at the data collection level is probably the most sensitive. Um, and then moving into the analytical logic. The reason why I say that is obviously without the data, we can't see anything. Um, and then without the correct logic, um, we will the anal it will never get into the analyst lap essentially. Um, but at Can the triage, just for clarification, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so uh, when you say sensitive, like from a technical classification perspective, sensitive means uh, more open to false positives. Like uh, uh, you're casting a broader, like a wider net. Uh, when I mean sensitive, is I mean um, better at the process. We need to be like. If we're looking at each layer, I want to be better at catching false negatives at the data collection layer um, than I am the triage layer. Layer essentially is what I'm saying because the triage layer can be taught. That a, a, an analyst can teach that or be taught that, um, and that can be learned. However, if we're not getting the data, um, that is the biggest issue. We move into logic, and this is what's quite interesting as well: is the how to make an analytical logic um because obviously we've talked about on the spectrum um there's precise and broad yeah but how to make a logic there's we that can be learned from an analyst or a de whoever's creating that detection however i would say it's harder because there's less uh either classes or courses out there on how to be effective and what you're looking for within an environment giving you know the behavior by which you're targeting um is it is it safe to say that uh, earlier, in, uh, and this may not be a truism across time, but it's a truism for now, I think, that earlier in the, the earlier phases uh, are more static? 
meaning like you kind of like set up your EDR agent, which has some static collection capability for mm. the types of events it generates. And like, yeah. you don't have the ability to adjust that as you, as you move forward. But like during investigation, you could almost adjust it on a alert by alert basis. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the things that both of you kind of, I think have your finger on the pulse of is I really like thinking Jared about um, the funnel, right. And how, all everything is like a, a data reduction problem. Yep, it is. Right. Yeah. And at, at every step, at every step along the way, it's a data reduction problem. And then Johnny more to your point, it's like um, at that first phase, right. That's where um, it's obviously worst, maybe worse the, to fail there. Cause, yeah. the, cause then there's no, everything else past that is you get more, reduced data is like a backup like or or not not a backup but like additional layers of Absolutely. more more chances to catch the thing right yes yeah i think there's uh so i think of i, I was an eagle scout so you know fun fact i guess Flex. but like yeah i think of <laughs> i think of like uh in orient orienteering like using a compass right um you you would like the way that the little like event would go is you would be given a, a heading right so like go 270 degrees and then uh, a distance and it would be like 300 meters right and so like if you're going 10 meters being off by one degree wasn't that big of a deal mm. right because you don't have you don't have as much time to make it like for that mistake to compound but if you're going 10 miles you would have like a huge one degree is going to make a huge difference right and so um i think of like a mistake in the collection this is going towards johnny's point i think a mistake in the collection ends up being magnified uh because it's basically being compounded upon right so like if because the 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 interesting thing about the funnel is when you exclude when you choose not to forward something to the next phase right so collect like collection in and of itself generating an event would be forwarding it to the next phase um as an input right so you'd be outputting to the next phase the uh if whenever you choose to not forward to the next phase that ceases like for all intents and purposes it ceases to exist unless you have some additional process that is able to like reconcile it i guess but um yeah so if you don't collect that an event happened in the first place. You almost can't outside of like forensics methods, which you're not going to use at an enterprise level anyway. Um, you can't recover that. It's yeah. it's just gone forever. Um, as opposed to making that decision later on, um, which obviously has more cost and you have to be able to bear that cost. Uh, but which uh, you make the decision later on when you have more information. Uh, ideally, you're making a more informed kind of decision, I guess. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, I think when most people talk about the funnel, it it seems quite obvious that um, collection should be, um, and when I say sensitive, it should be the most like um, focused on and perfecting that art. Um, it seems quite obvious. However, there's pieces to collection I don't feel like is often talked about. Yes, we want an event, but I want attributes to that event mm. that I can piece together to other event sources to contextualize the the life cycle or the timeline that's going on and what the question is, what attributes are valuable in that contextual piece. And that's when we start to move within the detection flow and then the triage flow. Because the reality is a detection logic might not use the same attributes within that, within that data format or that schema that the person doing triage or um, investigating the alert would be using. Yep. Um, however, the even, and that's whenever we were talking about the different use cases for events, that's where my mind went. It's split off is they might use the same events, 
but they're utilizing different attributes. So allowing those attributes to be there so each one can do the best they can do and classifying that event or that behavior is where I think um, can really be applied because I feel like that's often forgot. Okay, we have data in our environment. Great, we're done with data collection. Um, and then let's just go detection and then triage and investigation. Well, it's almost like a, do I think of it as almost think of it as like you drop a ball and it bounces. And it's yep. like, sure, as further you go, data reduction happens and they might utilize less attributes within that collection or that event, but they still need that. And so the question is what attributes are most important to each, um, to each phase, I guess. Is there like a, cause like, okay, so I, I acknowledge, I agree with you uh, in general about the, like you, you need to, there's at least some minimum number of attributes that you need to make the first decision, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, and so like, I, I tech, like technically speaking, I don't know from a practical perspective, how manageable this would be, but from a technical perspective, um, you may not need all of the attributes from the collection phase because each phase gives you an opportunity to potentially collect like so for instance investigation well investigation you could go and potentially like uh grab the mft so that you could do file system analysis which you you can't you can't for all intents and purposes you can't do that at the detection phase for instance because it's just that'd be way too much data i don't i don't know anybody that has any practical way to to manage someone's going to ride a driver this week now jared i, I know well hey, if they do off, if they do then like it can't be done they say it can't be done yeah <laughs> i'm not saying it can't be done i'm just saying it's not done <laughs> um but yeah so like okay so so i think the like the premise that i'm going at is that you can you can add context later on however if you don't have enough context to make the like if you collect and then you don't during that collection you don't get enough context to make a detection decision then you might as well have not collected in the first place is kind of i think your point johnny yeah yeah and do you think, I, go ahead do sorry you, do you think that um you know again now i'm thinking back before you before you were born but do you think <laughs> back in do you think like the whole collection thing has changed in the last five years just as things have gotten a lot cheaper like because mm -hmm. yo, seriously, ten years ago, people could not collect HP logs. Yeah, right back in the I, day, I used to run PowerShell scripts across the entire enterprise to collect uh, like running processes. Because back like, back in the day, people actually used floppy disks. I just use them as bookmarks. <laughs> um, like, <laughs> yeah. So I think like to that point, yeah. I think I, I from a price perspective, um, I would say yeah. That I would probably say that's pretty accurate. Um. I would also think from a visibility perspective, I think there's been a lot more eyes on what data can do for the analyst now than back in the day. And there's been a lot of people out in industry that have like been great at um, kind of showcasing that data. Um, you know, like Olaf Artong, Roberto, um, all those guys have done a tremendous job on saying, hey, guys, like if we're looking for a behavior, we have to look at these da the data. We have to look at the attributes. We have to standardize the data. And I think that's really been a good push for analysts in general um, in understanding what the data means and how it can be useful at each step, um, which I think is crazy impactful. You've been pretty good at uh, helping to enlighten us on the assumptions that are being made when the data is generated as well. So you have like the API documentation for Sysmon, for instance, that you did, which I think people take for granted because there's tons of assumptions uh, built into the data that were like the collection mechanism that's being used. Um, and we need to be more aware of what the what the mechanism is and what the like 
uh, ramifications of a particular mechanism are. If that yeah, I think and you've done a good job with that. I think. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a very. Uh, you give me in this rabbit hole. You you skipped over yourself, so I just wanted to make sure you gave you got a little credit. I appreciate it, buddy. Yeah, no problem. Um, it's <laughs> it. That's a very big rabbit hole for me because I've been very intrigued recently with what data is available to us? How do we optimize that data first and foremost? Because as we move through, everybody wants to talk about ETW, ETW. Is that a mug root beer, by the way? Yeah, mug root beer, bro. Dude, I haven't seen one of those since. A little baby baby size. No caffeine, Dang. seven and a half fluid ounces. I respect that, man. Keep the diet trimmed. Okay, sorry. Um, I've been I very. If, I don't know if it's diet. For, it's no caffeine. I don't just know go, if that's just bro, New year, new you. Just go with it, bro. Just go with it. Um. <laughs> How to optimize data, especially because I think it's very easy for us to run across something and say, if I had ETW logs, this would be a game changer. It's like, um, well, I don't know if you're the um, majority of event sources that are get exposed to us are coming from ETW from a Windows native perspective, um, first and foremost. Second off, um, ETW sourcing is coming all from the same way a lot of the ways as drivers, right? There's OB register callbacks that are used. Um, and so the event sourcing mechanisms can typically line up down the road where an EDR sensor can do something fairly sim uh, similar. Um, the question that I have is, how do we optimize the data? And then instead of um, sitting there saying, I want more, 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 which is ultimately just going to drive our price range up, how do we utilize this data to be more impactful to our environment and then start to collect what we truly need? Um, and so Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I think that's good for now. Okay. Yeah. yeah so I was just going to comment on your, like, uh, if I only had ETW, having been that, when I was in the Air Force, like I said, we used PowerShell to just collect things, right? And, like, yeah. obviously that is a very inefficient process, but the EDR didn't exist at the time. So you got to do what you got to do. But uh, having been guilty of being the person that was like, man, if I only had, like, you know, information about the ticket cash, we would, we would do everything. Or if I only had information about access tokens, or if I only had this, I find that that approach to be a crutch um, I agree. because almost everyone has more data than they're using. Like I don't, I've, I've never run into a situation where somebody is using the data that they have available to them to the fullest extent possible. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't benefit more from getting new data, but they're not, uh, they're not fully leveraging what they have available. If that makes yeah. sense. Most people can't query their data. Yeah. Yeah. Like they have tons, they can't query it effectively. They can't count things like, and it's, it's, I think it's harder than a lot of folks think. And then, you know, J Johnny, to your point, you're always like, just, I want to smash it together in the yeah. cloud, <laughs> but like, it's harder to do than, and yeah, it's all so disparate. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that goes back to the point of like, um, at each layer, how do we, um, effectively teach our analysts to, I guess, work in the full capacity that they can, right? Like be the best analyst they can be in that specific layer. Um, and querying, querying data is one of those issues, right? Um, and I think it's, I mean, it's one of those things where I think just playing with the data and then seeing what you can string together over time is really going to be the best experience. But um, there's not a lot of great courses out there. I'm a, I'm a big learner, so I like to look at courses and like take different things to get better perspective. But I can't think of a lot of great ones besides the, you know, I'm not chilling the Spectre Ops Detection course, but that's a really good one for actually like getting hand on keyboard and querying um, data. I believe Olaf has one as well. Um, and I think um, Databricks has one. There's probably other more. There's probably more out there, but I can't really think of a lot. Those are ones that I would look into. But um, I think that's where we can really start to, 
guess, be the best analyst I can be. Um, and oh, man. Or be the best the, Join the Army or what? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and so um, the data aspect's interesting. So then we take a step further. So it's like, if say we're optimizing the data, right? And we want, we, we're doing everything we can. The next piece is understanding why data isn't available to us. Um, so, you know, not everybody has the skill set nor wants to dive into this piece. Um, but like I often ran into, I kind of had like a perception change one day when I was like, man, if only I had this one attribute, I've been looking into token stuff quite recently. And, um, I'm like, if only I had this piece of information, like it would be game changing. And then I was like, well, let me figure out why this is, this isn't here. And then I got strung into all these embedded structures in the kernel and what it would take resource wise for a driver to actually go through those and like, okay, like an action triggers. And now I want to pull that information and you have to go through all these embedded structures to get this one attribute. Is it really realistic? All Are the you time? looking for like uh, when a thread is created, the token that's associated with it or? Yeah. The impersonation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. That'd be so nice. Blog coming soon. Um, and so, <laughs> <laughs> and so like, um, that's been quite interesting to me, but it's also been a perception change. So, as a researcher, when I'm looking at these behaviors and I'm like, man, I really wish this was there. Asking myself, A, why is it there? And then B, is it realistic to even like fundamentally ask the EDR vendor to start collecting that telemetry? Um, because that goes back to the other aspect. It's like, um, would I rather like this kind of is like kind of the premise behind Olaf and I are doing a talk at AttackCon. It's like this kind of like the premise behind that is like, would I rather have couple pieces of telemetry to help me with one attack or would i rather have three pieces of telemetry to help me with 20 oh man okay shoot i, ha I had something i wanted to go back to but now you've just opened up pandora's box i'm sorry i, I kind of rambled on there. i apologize for talking logs, so isn't it yeah i i think all of this has been so okay what i what i wanted to talk about earlier was this uh interesting thing when you started talking about like hey we're, uh, we need to be more precise and uh, sensitive in how we approach collection. And then as we go forward, we have a little bit more flexibility, I think, because we have more manual, like we tend, I don't think you have to necessarily, but we tend at this point to have more manual processes as you go further in the funnel, if that makes sense. I think uh, something that's interesting to think about too is this idea of like outsourcing ownership of certain funnel processes, right? So, um, the way that I look at it is each phase of the funnel can also be outsourced, right? So, uh, for instance, outsourcing collection would be an EDR or, you know, uh, some sort of sensor in some of some sort, right? So, like, if I buy an EDR, I've, you know, for all intents and purposes, outsourced my collection capability to that vendor, right? And that means that I uh, kind of like to Steve's point. I don't have tons of control uh, initial point when he was like a SOC analyst, right? I don't have tons of control over changes to that besides like a kind of a long-term long tail feedback mechanism that maybe I could have some influence. And then it's like, you could outsource your detections to the EDR vendor too. So like a lot of EDR vendors have telemetry generation and then they have also uh, some sort of detection capability. Right. Um, and then if you're the SOC analyst, that's outsourced, but you could also outsource the SOC with like an MSSP and then you could outsource like, so really, as like an industry, we've started to create opportunities to outsource each of each of the phases. Like you could even have like an IR retainer, right, which would be mm -hmm. kind of outsourced of remediation to some degree. Um, and so like outsourcing is very valuable to a lot of organizations, but you have to know that you're you are 
taking on assumptions that you don't necessarily know that you're taking on when you do when you do so right yeah, you're so not fully embedded into the process that's being yeah. implemented yeah. and i like to say that it's like uh your quality control goes from am i doing the right thing uh that's like the question goes like if you're doing it yourself you have to be like did i design the process properly to achieve the objective that i want to achieve then it goes towards are they doing the thing that i am paying them to do right and there's almost like a a reverse engineering process of like, how do I know when they say they detect, you know, credential dumping, how do I know that they actually detect, like what does detect credential dumping even mean? Because that's an uh, abstract yeah. concept in the first place. Mm. Right. Yep. Um, and so like, how do I, how do I close the gap between what's being said and what I expect of what's being yeah. said? Because that, it's not obvious that those two things are the same. Before you move on to your second point, I just want to say it's really satisfying to see whenever Steve agrees with something, he just goes, and it shakes his head real big. Yeah. It's like, yes, nailed. <laughs> or maybe he thought of like a, a rebuttal in his head, and he's, no, no, he's pre-celebrating. Little, a lot of agreement, a <laughs> lot of agreement. I think it's probably frustrating for people who are, you know, on the receiving end of detection. Um, you know, just to that point of like, my vendor, my EDR, my product, they say they they do this, but you know, do I even spend the time challenging them? And how can I challenge them? Yep. Yeah. And a lot of consumers, you know, don't have effective ways of doing that. And it's very expensive to, if you want to do that, it's expensive to do that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I completely agree with that as well. What I, uh, going back to your other point, Johnny, of like, would I benefit from, so like you got you and Luke at least have heard my idea. It's a lame name, I know, and he's going to make, Luke's going to make Netflix. Fun, but- uh, no, no, no. Yeah. Detectionomics. Yeah, detectionomics. So I, I have this I have this concept of like micro versus macro detectionomics. And it's like basically uh how do you evaluate your decision making and where you want to spend resources, right? And so like uh macro micro detectionomics is kind of what like I focus on. So like I have a lot more opinions on that, which is if I choose to detect credential dumping, for instance, how do I ensure that my approach to detecting credential dumping is as effective as possible, right? So that's like, like focused on one specific goal and making it as technically capable as possible. But macro detectionomics is the thing that you're kind of talking about, I think, which is uh, of all the different techniques that an attacker can can perform, which ones basically provide me the biggest bang for my buck, right? So like, if uh, because you know it's not a one for like technique for technique, it's not a one to one correlation. So like you're saying. Hey, is it worth me solving the like access token manipulation problem where I see I can see um, like credential theft, right? Or uh, I mean, uh, impersonation, for instance. Mm-hmm. Or what if I could solve these other like five techniques if they give me some other piece of uh, telemetry? And like that is not an e- like from my perspective, that is not an easy question to answer because yeah. there's like uh, there's a question of frequency. So how frequently are those uh, attack techniques used? There's a question of impact. So like how central to success are those attack techniques? How easy are those attack techniques to replace with some other attack technique that allows them to achieve the same uh, result? And like I, that's just off the top of my head. So like it's way more complicated than that. I think there's a, I think there's a huge, there's, there's a huge threat intel component conceptually. Um, I, I have questions about like what I see as implementation of threat intel in a lot of cases, but conceptually like what i envision intelligence to be in general i think there's a huge component of intelligence on the macro question there's also a relatively large uh influence of threat intel on the micro question which is like 
you know, show me some examples of this technique being used so I can start to understand what it, you know, what it looks like and what the variations might be and like challenge my assumptions. But the, uh, the question of like the ma the macro question, there's like, I think threat Intel could be, is the major player in making that decision personally. Who is, and for any given organization, you know, is anyone in a good position to determine which techniques are more common? Yeah. Thank I, you. I, this, I don't think so. See, this <laughs> is like what I wish was out there, you know, and I'm, I'm relatively ignorant on the topic, so I, I don't think so, but I don't know. No, like this is like, is no. yeah, the question, yeah, that's like something I really wish was out there. Like the prevalence of a specific attack path being used. Yes. And so it's like, the question becomes is like, and this is a markup please, Jared, on question, the, isn't it? John. It is, yeah. Drum roll, please, on OST and markup chains. Give it to me, Jared. Um, instead of a whole bunch of C2s being released and all these other things, and I like I love um, I love tools being released because it helps me with research. I would love to see write-ups on attack paths, why people use that attack path, because I think ultimately that can be fed back into detection a lot easier because if I, that helps me choose the priority by which I want to start looking into detection opportunities. So if I know someone's going from, um, if I'm hitting point A and then they have a fork in the road and they choose two options, they're more likely to choose point C instead of B. I want to detect C before I check B because my thought is um, the whole premise behind like Bloodhound, right, is to identify the least resistance in terms of attack path to your goal. Um, if I can write a detection for almost two, let's say there's five pieces, five steps in that attack path, like all right, detection for three, great. They ha the the attacker now has to move around my detection mm. in theory, which means that it's more likely for them to make a mistake and trigger another alert. You just you just got me on the so like one of the the ideas that I have is this bait, like on the ma the micro sense, which again is where I spend all my time thinking um, the base condition, which is like, if I'm going to create a service, what must happen for every service that ever is created? And like for the case of services, as far as I'm aware, um, the, the base condition, the thing that must happen is a registry has to be created. A registry key has must be created under the like uh, HKLM system, current control set services path. Um, and that will happen every time, right? Um, like a lot of, a lot of telemetry is based around the RPC, um, interface or, uh, procedure being called, but that's, that's not as, that's not the base condition. It's one layer above. And so the, the, the question, the thing that you're kind of introducing Johnny is this idea of what's the base condition to a successful, uh, overall attack from a macro sense, which is yes. like bloodhound is one example of something that might be illuminating that base condition, which is like, where is, where is the choke point? And if I could understand what, like, where the choke point is, and what facilitates, what would facilitate the uh, success from the attacker's perspective? So, like, what is the primitive that's being used, uh, like, to be successful? Maybe a a service account is constantly logged onto a computer, and a lot of people have access to that computer, and so they could assume that identity or whatever. Um, then now I can create a specifically focused macro kind of approach to solving that problem as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, I think the resistance to what an attacker has to do in order to be successful is truly like a key thing there, um, potentially. And I think, um, I, I know like Bloodhound is used from a red team perspective a lot, but just not enough from a blue team. At least the majority of environments I've seen hasn't necessarily used Bloodhound from a blue perspective, because I think that could be funneled into the priority of detections, creating like a wall 
and then like resisting and setting up group policies and different account changes to where you're resisting the attacks and then goes back to Luke's phenomenal point of alerting on audit failures. Someone's trying to get into this account. Now I know someone's in my environment. Great. And then insert, you know, I hate to use this term with all my might and soul, but insert threat hunting. But like, <laughs> um, that's the only word that I can think of right now. <laughs> I mean, that's a completely different Pandora's box we could open yeah. <laughs> if somebody's interested. You know, I, I've kind of grown more fond of this, like, enumerating attack path stuff, you know, like mentioning Bloodhound. And just like, right, and you talk about introducing friction. And the more you introduce friction, in some cases, the attacker will just leave altogether, yeah. right? And they will go to a softer, easier... Laterally move into another box. Place, right? Eventually. Um, yeah. But, yeah, in some cases, like, that that itself, most people would not qualify that as threat intelligence. But I think it could be. I think oh. it could be. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's a good point. Okay, yeah, so, like, I think there's, uh, again, ignorant, right? So, you know, threat intelligence people, if you're listening, don't get pissed off at me. But there there has to be, like, a hierarchy of threat intelligence contexts, right? So there's, like, the global context, which is, like, Twitter, right? So, like, you just see <laughs> stuff, right? Then uh, And maybe, maybe like, the global knowledge base of previous attacks that are public. That's, like, kind of the... Or maybe shared within some sort of threat group, right? That's, like, global. Then there's, like, maybe... Like you have FSISAC, which is like a industry vertical, like you could maybe draw some different conclusions if you focus on the industry specifically. Then there's like corporate risk acceptance and corporate business. Um, like like if you're, you know, a company X, you may do things a certain way and that creates some amount of risk. And then there's even like a, which I hadn't previously considered and you're kind of introducing this is like a technical threat intelligence approach, which is like, a layer below the business, the line of business type level of threat intelligence, which would be, so it's like, yeah, like I don't, there's, there's some degree to where I don't even need to know what the business does. If I look at the network, I could evaluate what's, what the risk is. Right. Yeah. Well, but, the risk is always ransomware. Yeah. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> enough. Right. It doesn't matter what industry you are in. Yeah. Like, if you have a computer, you, you got to watch out, better watch out. Yep. Which in, in that case, then, it, you know, I guess the only thing that really matters is the technical level of analysis to some degree. It's yeah. uh, like the attack path level, I guess we could call it. Yeah, maybe, maybe you know, I, I'm in favor of calling like, you know, things that are derived from like real breach examples, you know, those have their own uh, spectrum of like threat intelligence, whether that's atomic indicators or tradecraft or um or more strategic things like targeting yada 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 mm -hmm. but like attack path stuff you know because that's based on techniques um you know maybe it's not quote threat intel maybe it's more a different type of you know security insight or i think that's like a, a mixture of like threat intel plus a little re research yeah you know yeah. detection so intel i don't know Right, we make yeah. up new words for Jared. Do you have fancy words? What's a good word for? I, that? Yeah, I don't. I don't know, man. But I, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's certainly like it's certainly valuable to the same problem that threat intelligence should be trying to solve. Yeah, yeah, and like I mean, if you, for instance, just using Bloodhound as an example, and obviously this is a little hyperbolic because I don't know that it's practical uh, 
it's practical to implement it this way. But in theory, you use Bloodhound to uh, evaluate the entire concept of where where ransomware would be able to spread, and you can, in theory, shut it down completely if you just focus on that. Um, but then you might not; it might not be usable. Obviously, like your network might not be usable if you did that. Um, but it is like in theory possible, I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's certainly interesting and how that how that could be used. But I think uh, we don't use that information to make those macro level decisions enough. Yeah, I think it's interesting too because we talk about this and like the reality is like although it seems like a conceptually like a, a fairly easy problem to solve, I think there's a lot of practice that goes behind it um, from a, like a actual impact impactful or like fundamental perspective in the sense of okay we have to pull all this data somehow from all the quote-unquote attacks that we have alerted on in the past x amount of years and then we have to do analysis on that and start to group everything together um the question becomes is like and, and this is like this is general just generally a problem with cyber in general like we're on our understanding of attacks are limited by what we have caught. Yep. Like that that's where I think like research potentially comes in and we start to uncover different things and different um uh like abilities out there. Like for example, I was playing around on my computer last night and I saw that there's a native binary sitting on Windows called gather network info dot BBS. <laughs> and I'm like, dear God, what is this? And I run it and then it just pulls like group policy info, network info, the whole nines, and I'm like well, this is potentially another recon opportunity that attackers could use. Um, and so like that, that's the lucky wins. I mean, that's a very minimal win, right? But that's a lucky wins that comes out of research every once in a while. Um, but when it comes to like the whole mark of chains and prevalence with attack path, I think the same thing could be said potentially, as I said with data about optimizing data as optimizing our processes on each layer of the funnel. Because I don't know if most organizations could handle that type of operation yet. Because either they're not doing detection well yet or triage well yet, investigation well, IR well, et cetera, even if they're outsourcing it potentially. Um, so maybe the first step is let's optimize those processes before moving on to the more advanced problems um, like the prevalence attack path piece. I think at the very least, there's uh, there's an aspect of a lot of organizations could just use intuition to determine what they should be looking at, yeah. right? Like you, if you pay attention at all, you probably have five or ten different attack techniques that you are pretty certain are used frequently that you uh, you should be addressing before. Like there's a analysis paralysis aspect of like trying to have a perfect like technique selection process, and it's like yeah, sometimes it's just better to do something than do nothing, I guess, and wait for a perfect solution. Yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, interesting. Sorry, go ahead. If you got it, you're right. You, you're kind of like, you're, you're an organization, you've got event logs. You probably naturally start to think of things you can pick up with event logs, right? Yeah. yeah. And you, you might pick those first just because they're, you think that they're the easiest to get to even. Well, they have the minimal. They have minimal friction, right? Because uh, getting additional data is not a simple, like in many organizations, not a simple process, right? Like, so you you may have to purchase an EDR 
or like, and then get it deployed, which is also not necessarily simple for some organizations. And so it's like, yeah, like the, the least friction is going to come from using the things that you already have, whether or not it's the best, uh, the best solution is maybe besides the point to some degree. Right. I think, yeah, I think it's interesting because you think about it and I, this is probably a pretty well known but between most people, but like, I feel like red team is their job is to create the most resistance for blue teamers and the analyst's job is to create the most resistance for red teamers. But that also like leads me to the point of when it comes to red. All right, here's my controversial conversation. Oh boy. How valuable is red teaming? And what I mean by that is like, I'm not saying it's not valuable. My question is how do we objectively um, put a value number or list on red teaming and what is providing to a certain environment? I'm pretty abstracted from this process. I mean, previously, like I was working with red teamers at Spectre, but I mean, I'm pretty abstracted from red teamers in general now being at Red Canary. Um, so like my question is like when, because ultimately red teamers should be feeding, like however the report is should be as robust as possible to feed back into the detection process or even the collection process so that the um, the SOC can do their job better, right? Um, but how do we quantify that, right? I, th- I think there's... Um... It depends on what you mean by red teaming. It depends. Uh, but from my perspective, <laughs> like there's a a training element of red teaming, which is uh, let me create a scenario that you don't see on a regular basis, so that you can basically execute your response to it and evaluate whether or not that response achieves the objective that you want. So, like maybe you have um, some process for rolling your your KRBTGT account password, and like nobody, like you conceptually, you've written down what it is. Uh, nobody's ever done it and so like you probably you might want some like some activity to occur that forces that to to happen in like a in a you know contrived example um and then like you might also want the feedback of does our procedure actually like stop the golden ticket from being useful in the future right which like unless you test that you shouldn't assume that 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 it works the way that you think it does just because somebody wrote a blog post doesn't mean that that person tested it either. Um, so that's one aspect and we'll put that to the side for now, I guess. But then the, like the other aspect, and I think it's probably more complicated than this, but, um, I used to have like four things that I thought red teaming was good for. And then I took like a month off work for, uh, for delayed paternity leave. And I've now forgotten what those were and can't find my notes on it. But I think there's, I think there's so like Jared's a, now at zero. No, yeah. I'm, I'm at playing. one. I'm at one. There's like a, uh, a qual like it's quality control, right? And so it's like uh, when you do a full scope, uh, like no notice red team, what you're evaluating is does the aggregate of my process work the way that I expect it to? If if we are hacked, will I know about it and be able to stop it, right? And like the problem is, is that when you do a full scope, that's that's the level of detail that you can derive from it, right? Um, which is potentially not super valuable, like it might not be valuable to every every customer, right? Because uh, that's a pretty broad perspective um, and it's hard to really derive, okay, we didn't detect it. Like if, that's, that's a common result is we didn't detect it. But if you're focused broadly, it's very difficult to say we didn't detect it because of X, right? It's hard to go back to the like, the reason why, you, where you failed, the place where you failed or the places where you failed. And so a lot of times I like to think about, uh, providing some sort of like red team interaction, like adversary emulation, such and such at the different levels of different phases of the funnel, right? So there's like a, um, you know, detection, like we wrote a detection to detect credential dumping. Is it possible to dump credentials and not be detected by that, by that detection, detection rule? 
that would be like one level of red teaming, quote unquote, that would be more, more precise, right? So you're, you're narrowing the focus. And like when that, if that fails, like if you fail to detect that, you now have a better idea of where the failure occurred, but you could also do that in like a, a triage scenario, right? So like, Hey, we know that we're going to detect this because like, we're going to contrive, like make it so contrived that we know that an alert's going to be raised, but is our SOC analyst or our MSSP going to actually process and triage that appropriately and then escalate it right and then if that fails we know the problem occurred right there because that's like we contri- we made it contrived enough to where there's only one place where it could fail go ahead johnny yeah i'm curious on your guys thoughts on this like i'm curious if the quality of red team could be tied to the same constraints as the funnel so in the sense of like a red team happens did we collect the data? Yes or no? Move on to the next piece. Yeah. Did it bypass this? Bypass. Yeah, I think you. Yeah, like, I think you, I hate, I think I you that. see that. That's another Pandora box. Pandora well, box. yeah. So you have the by, like the different bypasses you have a blog post about, which is like uh, a bypass isn't a bypass isn't a bypass, right? There's there's yeah. different levels of analysis of bypasses, which inform you if you if you just think of it as a generic bypass, you have no solution, right? Like you have no way to come up with a solution because you have to like. Was the problem that that our detection didn't fire, or was the problem that we were just too slow in executing the funnel to mm-hmm. remediation? Because like the yep. solution for those is radically different, right? So yep. you you must be able to diagnose where the where the problem occurred. But like yeah, yeah th- so you could you could do it, I think, in a way to where you literally break it up and say we're just going to test this portion, and that's mm-hmm. a little bit more consumable, I think. Um, and you could also make it contrived enough to where you guarantee to get the training objective that, or like the testing objective that you that you're after. Or you could do it to where you do the whole thing, but you evaluate it at each phase. And I think yeah. you see that in like the miter attack evals to some degree, to where they say like, um, "Hey, uh, this this was detected, but it was detected in the sense that uh, an event was generated which was related to this, or a detection, an alert fired related to this, or like a prevention occurred, right? So like they they're uh, I don't know that I agree with like the language that they use because I don't know that there's like a on like a uh whatever whatever the terminology for like a proper language for describing and differentiating between those would be but um they they're at least identifying like hey there's there's a difference in success right so a prevention is counted is measured differently than like generating an event which would be kind of what you're talking about I think Johnny yeah that's of course looking at the EDR and not the process, I guess. So yeah, I'm it's thinking slightly different. Well, I think, yeah, I think it could be done both ways. Potentially, like quality control. Like if you hit like the triage investigation phase, and it's like, hey, we did X. You you quote unquote alerted at it, but the process you went um, to actually classify this as malicious or benign was a either too slow or wrong. Yeah. Um, and so, like, how do we how do we utilize that as a DG? What do you do? You have any thoughts on that, Steve? I'm enormously underqualified really to talk about red team red teaming in general um so with that out of the way tell us what you with think. that out of the way <laughs> here's all my ideas <laughs> um but you know I, I think there's a lot of different and this is dumb because it's not really about detection at all but i think there's a lot of different types of buyers for red teams most of the time yeah. and i'm only thinking of the full scope red sure, teaming, sure. like do an intrusion and get some stuff and i i think uh to be fair i think that's what i think that's what the market thinks about as well yeah yeah well i think a lot of times this is 
something that is served up to already very, you know, organizations that invest a lot in security and they already have a lot of maturity. They already have, they have their own funnels, right? And they have a funnel and they have layers at every step of the funnel. And I think people want to know, right? At every step, how many dots do I have? How do we reduce it? How long did it take the red team? Like how many weeks do I have to get to that point where we find, where we find them? And um, I don't know. I think it's a useful exercise for people. And I think it's a lot, it's about a lot more than detection, but it's, if detection starts at that collection area, um, that's where detection engineering comes in. We have to say like, what can we do to give those other teams and those other consumers the right types of data so that they can do their thing, right? How do we feed that funnel in the right way? And maybe the answer is uh, we don't because we did a good job or maybe the red team gets in and, and, and does their thing and like just absolutely owns the whole process. And as long as you can have some evidence of it, and as long as your business can operate successfully throughout it, maybe the CEO says, that's great. We did our thing. We got a pretty good process. We actually don't need any changes at all. And we're not going to give you that money you want for extra ne network sensors. Yeah. And so yeah. I think it's kind of a crapshoot. Um, yeah. You know, I think there's an interesting aspect of uh, one of the things. So like uh, at Spectre Ops, I'm kind of like or I, I, I've been in charge of the like, how do we make sure that the services that we provide are technically valuable or like technically good for the customer that we're providing them for? And then there's like the service delivery side, which is kind of like, how do I make sure that when we deliver that service, the customer's happy? Right. And I think those those like in any business, those two things have uh, a natural tension um, because it's like is like the customer's happiness is not actually necessarily tied to uh, like e efficacious performance, right? And so like uh, there, there's this weird kind of thing to where, um, yeah, just because like when you do a red team, the output could be, oh yeah, the customer loved the red team, but that doesn't, and this, this is true outside of red teams, I think as well. Um, but that doesn't mean that like the red team was valuable for them, right? And like one of the things that I try to, that I'm exploring conceptually, like, uh, is how can you create red team offerings? And maybe it's not red team in the traditional sense, right? But some sort of like adversary induced offering that, uh, that actually provides a practical benefit that's, that's digestible. I think the key is digestible for the, uh, yeah. for the consumer. Well, this is where I really love this concept of like purple teaming. Like, yeah. yo, we got hunters, we got a sock, we got instant responders, we got detection engineers. Like, let's have a scrimmage where both where people are working on both sides, like attack and defense. Mm -hmm. And like, let's just walk through this process. Like, let's get reps in when it's not that when it's less stressful. Yep. And in it's like very like it's much more real than just a simulation. Yeah, maybe right. what I'm describing is purple teaming, but uh, maybe even less abstracted than that. Because like uh, purple teaming still sounds more like a what you described anyway sounds more like a full scope thing, and I still mm. think that there's value in uh, caging the exercise to a specific component so mm. that you could evaluate it. Obviously, it becomes more expensive as you reduce the scope because then you have to stack it in order to um, in order to cover have coverage, but 
I think there's more bang for your buck potentially in that uh, in that arena. So it's an interesting thing to kind of explore, I think. Yeah. Cool. I think we're uh, getting towards the end of our time, Steve. We really appreciate you. Uh, it was a great. Uh, this was actually a really really awesome conversation. I had a good time. Um, I wanted to give you some time to maybe share any parting thoughts. Maybe you have something uh, with your with your business that you want to share, or just some. I don't know, random thoughts, maybe tell us a hobby of yours or I don't know, whatever you want to, you, get, you, you, are at you, have some, you have some time I'm not just good to at talk. Warzone. I'm terrible at Warzone, but I, I have good partners. So I get lots of dubs more than Johnny and Luke. So, well, you know, uh, no, I, I think the detection conversations are really good and, you know, I, I definitely appreciate um, coming on. Cause I think a lot of people are kind of thinking about it and um, just noodling on, on ways to just advance just how we all think about detection. And I think it's cool. We all have slightly different approaches and a little bit of the different languages um, in terms of how we describe these things. But I think like for everybody who's interested in detection, uh, digging into that problem where we say detection is, is a multi-stage thing. Mm -hmm. It's not a fault. Right. That whole like that funnel of opportunity, the detections across a spectrum of specificity. And then when it's within a, an active like defense process, there's like FPs and FNs at all these little steps along the way. And I just think that is such a that is such a shift from like the last decade of thinking on detection. Yeah. And the world's not there yet. Right. And like that's this is a hard conversation. Like it's easy for, for us to have because we have the words and the experience to talk about this, but a lot of people are just not there. Um, and so like we have this huge challenge to bring it, bring it to the people in ways that are uh, digestible and understandable and offers them like tangible help. Like it's like, it's great to think big ideas and mo mental models and all that, but like we actually have to frame it in a way that it really helps organizations like do something, you know? Yeah. Um, sure. And I think this is a part of it. I think this is a part of it. And I don't know. You you mentioned something to me about how you you're interested in trying to like get some people together to start putting uh like because you said we all have diver like semi divergent opinion like you and I actually have I think fairly similar thoughts on the overall approach but maybe we don't use the exact same language in some cases we use very similar language uh, in a vacuum which is pretty yeah. interesting <laughs> that makes me feel good personally but um like there there should there's an opportunity I think to get some people together and actually start working through what uh kind of like a community opinion because like uh, we have community tooling community uh uh data sets that type of stuff but we we don't really have like at least i'm not aware of like a community uh approach to the overall vision for how a detection and response program should function yeah. and i think that that could be something that uh, is really interesting to pursue in the long run yeah and it, it would be fun to you know, we all have our own blogs and our own research. We do our own presentations. I think it's worthwhile to get, you know, folks who are interested in detection in, you know, writing together yeah, and like coming up with, with, you know, things that kind of transcend a lot of technologies and organizations. Yep. Um, Cause I think it's easy to get kind of stuck in, you know, the way you learned things and the kind of lenses through which you see the world. Right. Yep. And as much as we love to tweet, like it's hard to tweet meaningful stuff it's yep. mostly vapid trash yep right 
So like, let's, let's try to, let's try to write something, man. Let's yeah. put together a blog or a website or a, uh, an ebook. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And like, uh, an interesting thing is like, uh, it's, it's cool to develop these things on your own, but it's also great to get constructive feedback from people that, you know, are at least putting, uh, some amount of thought into like the feedback and not just trying to dismiss whatever, whatever it is. Yeah, I think it's perspective too, right? Like we're on, like, again, like our perspective is limited to what we see on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Um, and so the more that we interact with others that see different things, the more our perception or perspective expands. Um, and I think that's where we can actually start to move the needle forward in the community um, is start to expand that perspective, not limit our eyes and try to put stuff out. Like I, I love collaborating with people because I think that's where, the true value comes um, because, again, perspective and exposure. Yeah, for sure. Cool. All righty. Thanks, gentlemen. Uh, great conversation. Steve, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. And uh, until next time, thanks, everybody, for listening. Hopefully you made it all the way through. <laughs> thanks for tuning in to this episode of Detection Challenging Paradigms. If you want to keep up with us, you can do so on Twitter at DCP the Podcast or on our website, dcppodcast.com, where you'll find links to all previous episodes and their episode guides, as well as to our store, where 100% of our proceeds benefit charity. Uh, Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.